Welcome to the My Buddy Green podcast. I'm Jason Wachab, founder and co-CEO of My Buddy Green, and your host. Dr. Sarah Gottfried is one of the world's best when it comes to all things hormones. She is a Harvard-educated physician scientist and a clinical assistant professor in the Department of Integrative Medicine and Nutritional Sciences at Sidney Kimmel Medical College, Thomas Jefferson University. She is the New York Times best-selling author of three previous books, including The Hormone Cure, and today she's here to discuss her latest bestseller, Women, Food, and Hormones. Sarah, welcome. Hey, Jason. So happy to be with you. It is so great to see you. We were saying before the show, it's been like five years since since we've seen each other. So it's good to see you again. And it is awesome to see you out with another incredible book that's absolutely crushing it. And it starts with a great title, Women, Food, and Hormones. I love it. Congratulations. <laughs> well, thank you. I mean, it, it's a series of topics that are super misunderstood. So I, I just couldn't resist. <laughs> so in, in terms of being misunderstood, there's a lot to unpack there, specifically with the connection between hormones and weight gain and weight loss, specifically with, with women. And you have in the book these five principles. So could you start there by briefly walking us through the five principles of women and weight? Sure can. So Jason, the first principle is that hormones influence weight. A lot of people miss that piece because they think about hormones in terms of mood or they think about it in terms of sex drive or even muscle mass, they don't realize that your hormones are so important when it comes to weight. Calories matter, of course, but hormones matter more. So that first principle is just to really drive home the point that metabolism includes your hormones. The second is women have more hormone problems than men do. I think that is in many ways self-explanatory. Women go through these dramatic hormonal upheavals on a daily basis when they're menstruating. And then we go through this experience of perimenopause, usually after 40, and then menopause around 51 or 52. And that's where we have these really steep changes in terms of our hormones, particularly estrogen and progesterone, which I think are probably the most commonly known. But there's other hormones too that can change quite precipitously such as growth hormone, which hopefully we'll talk about today. But there's other hormones too that are more gradual in terms of their changes, such as testosterone. The third principle is that the ketogenic diet influences hormones. And this is something that really was driven home for me when I went on keto for the first time. Actually, it was right around the time that I was last hanging out with you. So your book came out. I even have a before photo that's the two of us, you and me, on a stage. And I'm about 20 pounds heavier than I am now. Mostly me too. Now. Me too. Are you? Well, you've got a couple <laughs> of kids, so you have a good reason to be a little bit heavier than before. No, no, I'm lighter than before. Oh, you're, oh okay. Yeah, yeah. Oh, well, I want to hear about that. I want to hear about that. <laughs> um, okay, so we both have had some sort of transformation since five years ago. But I went on keto with my husband. He dropped 20 pounds in a short amount of time, a couple of months, and I gained weight. I had some initial success, but then it just seemed to reverse. 
the deeper that I got into ketosis. And so I realized that keto is definitely affecting your hormones and not always in a positive way, at least not classic keto or what some people call dirty keto. The fourth principle is that because of their hormones, women react differently to the ketogenic diet than men do. This is one of those situations where men have an advantage. So they have something called the testosterone advantage. There's other advantages as well, but related to having higher testosterone levels, men have more muscle mass, they have a higher metabolic rate. And it just means that when they go on a ketogenic diet, they tend to see the benefits more so than women do. It's not that women can experience the benefits. It's just that we need some workarounds that I was able to discover once I finally got keto to work for me. And then the last principle is that women can follow a ketogenic diet, but they do better with the hormone balancing version, such as the Gottfried Protocol. So that's really what the book is about. How do we adapt the ketogenic diet for women so that they can be successful, not for the purpose of dropping weight, which is what I started with, but really for the purpose of improving metabolic health, which is my goal for my patients. It's my goal for the readers of this book. There's a lot to unpack there, and I'll come back to metabolic health and, and metabolic flexibility. We talk about metabolism all the time. I think people read about metabolism, but we, we don't talk a lot about metabolic flexibility. So could you give us a primer on metabolic flexibility? How, how should we think about it and why is it so critical to our well-being, specifically when it comes to hormones and managing weight? Metabolic flexibility is the ability to switch back and forth between burning carbs or glucose and burning fat. So it's almost like a toggle switch. I think that it's similar to a Prius that is able to flip back and forth between using the battery or using gas, depending on the type of fuel that's available. So we want our bodies to operate that way as well. And what happens for so many of us, and I would put myself in this camp before I figured out metabolic flexibility, what happens to so many of us is that we get stuck in burning carbs. So we burn carbs, we may even become what's known as carb intolerant, where you just don't do well with carbs, like your glucose spikes unnecessarily, your insulin, which drives glucose into cells, becomes more problematic and rises. And so many of us get stuck and we're not able to flip that switch. We can't toggle back and forth between burning carbs and burning fat. We get stuck in a burning carb mode. And when you're stuck in that state and there's a certain hormonal profile that fits with that, associated with not just high insulin, which makes you store fat, but also with high hunger hormones. So you're hungrier than maybe you were before you had problems with insulin. So the, that's kind of the constellation of symptoms that we see. And just to maybe make this a little bit bigger, what we know is that 88% of Americans are metabolically unhealthy. So part of that picture is that they may have difficulty with metabolic flexibility. And it's really baked into our DNA that we need to have that ability, that flexibility to toggle back and forth between burning carbs and burning fat, depending on the type of fuel that we have supplied. And so when you talk about carbs and fat, I'll segue to keto. There's a lot about keto in the book. You talk about how men have had 
well, men have an advantage with keto. More men have had success with keto than, than women. And you also talk about the male bias in terms of the research done on keto. So let's start with the male bias. Let's, let's take down the patriarchy. <laughs> See, this is why I love you, Jason. Yeah. So one of the challenges is that when women are included in research studies, they often are, you know, so much of the weight loss data or looking at metabolic health when it comes to a ketogenic diet was done in men. So about 80% of it was performed in men because women's hormonal systems change so much on a daily basis before menopause. And so there's this bias, this idea that women are too complex, let's just leave them out of this particular study. And so when you see that over decades and decades, and of course the ketogenic diet has been around for almost 100 years, developed by a man initially for epilepsy. And what we, what we know is that women just aren't included in so much of the research that's done. When they are included, what we see is more problems. So for example, some of the early data that was done looking at epilepsy found that women premenopausally, there's about a 45% menstrual irregularity that we see in women on a ketogenic diet. So of course that's related to hormonal changes. We also see that there's more thyroid disruption. So elevation of things like reverse T3 when carbs are taken too low. And that's something that we see very commonly in women who are on a classic ketogenic diet. The third thing that we see is women have higher rates of insomnia. And we know that carbs are necessary for us to make serotonin, which is so important for getting a good night's sleep every night, for making not just serotonin, but also melatonin. So we've got to get that dose of carbohydrates right. And we know that this bias towards including more men in the metabolic data with the ketogenic diet leads us without, it, it leaves us without enough solutions when it comes to women on keto. I know it's a big part of the book, but what, what are some of the workarounds, if you will, for women? There's three pillars to the protocol that I describe this way to adapt keto for women. The first is detoxification. So I love how Mind Body Green talks a lot about detox. You know, many folks in mainstream medicine believe that, oh, the body detox is just fine. We don't have to augment it. But the truth is what I see every day in patient care, I take care of both men and women. What I see is that for a lot of folks, their detox pathways are sluggish. They're just not doing what they're meant to do in terms of mopping up the toxins. So what I found with myself and then with hundreds of patients that have gone through this particular protocol is that you gotta clean up those toxins first before attempting a ketogenic diet it just allows the process of creating metabolic flexibility to work much better. And you don't get as much in the way of sharp excursions. Women tend to have these exaggerated glucose responses compared to men, especially when they're first on keto, particularly hypoglycemia. So I find that detoxification is a really important piece. And some of the hormones that are involved, by, I mentioned insulin as well as the hunger hormones like leptin and ghrelin, some of the hormones really need detoxification. So a big part of managing estrogen, for instance, is to inactivate it with methylation. And that's one of those terms that like nobody 
actually understands completely unless you're a scientist. But what we know is that eating the dark green leafies is a great way to inactivate some of those excess estrogens. So getting the cruciferous vegetables that help you with liver detoxification, getting the allium vegetables, things like garlic and leeks and onion, that helps you with making glutathione, which is part of this process of mopping up the toxins. So that's the first pillar. Second pillar is nutritional ketosis. And what I found, you know, when I first went on classic keto, I was told, keep your total carbs less than 10 grams a day, which as you know, is almost nothing. And I had a lot of problems with that. So I had thyroid dysfunction, I had issues with sleep. And what we know is that focusing on net carbs, even though I was told that was not the way to do keto, I found that many patients are able to get into ketosis, focusing on net carbs. So a big part of this process is to make sure that you're getting the right carbohydrates. So getting the dose right, getting the type right, especially those vegetables that we talked about. And then the third part is to layer in intermittent fasting. And that's one of those loopholes that we have in our DNA that allows us to almost open the back door to ketosis. So it's a way, especially for women, but men too, to get more carbohydrates, but to stay in ketosis. So you mentioned methylation. I, I am a huge fan of methylation. You don't know, our audience probably knows this. I talk about it a lot now. My methylation personal story. So this is after we lost, saw each other. So let me ask you a question. What's the, what's the highest homocysteine you've ever seen? Oh boy. Sounds like a high number is coming my way from Jason. So I would say the patients I saw today, somewhere around 12 to 15. That's kind of a typical number. I like it five to seven, but tell me your story. So in 18, when I started to get more serious around my blood work, and I see Frank Lipman here in New York, we discovered my homocysteine was 63. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And for our listeners, like homocysteine at those levels could lead to catastrophic clotting, you know, blood clot in terms of aneurysm, pulmonary embolism, uh, stroke. And so, and I'm the MTHFR gene, the double C677T. I've talked to our mutual friend, Chris Kresser about this. I always like float it to, when the subject of methylation comes up, I have to bring it up because I actually am convinced that since like 40% of the population has the gene, they probably aren't methylating properly and have higher homocysteine because most, a lot of people don't test for it. And so today it's, in a range between 12 and 15, all through like a cocktail of B vitamins and betaine. And, and I'm just sort of stuck here, but like you brought up methylation, like we don't talk about this enough. Cause I think it's a huge problem that most people aren't aware of. So I love that you mentioned methylation. Well, it's, I'm so glad that you discovered this with your work with Frank Lipman. I feel like so many folks, I had a patient today who has stone cold normal what I think of as second generation lipids. So her total cholesterol is fine. Her triglycerides are HDL or LDL. They're all fine. But when you look under the hood, which is what we do in precision and functional medicine, when you look at the homocysteine as a marker of inflammation, as a marker of methylation, when you look at some of these more advanced markers, such as uh, LDL particle or lipo little a, it starts to make sense that 50% of people who have a heart attack had normal lipids. Mm -hmm. But the problem is they didn't get this expanded profile 
that tells us so much more information, such as it did in your case. Yeah, and so now I'm the the, the crazy man who does too, probably too many vials of blood. I think the last one was north of 35. I actually complained about it. It was just too many. It was, I'm like, guys, this is just too much. But like yeah. all, all those heart disease runs in my family. So I want to make sure I'm good. So like you mentioned LPA, APOB, particle size, LDL, you, like you name it. I tested for it. But specifically- now 30, 35 vials is a little too much, Jason. I have a limit at about 20. So- <laughs> So do I now. Now I do. I remember she kept on pulling out vials and I'm just like, whoa, 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 hold on. I'm, I'm, I'm into this, but I think we need to scale this back. So you mentioned this earlier, testosterone. In the book, you have this great line, testosterone. You say it's, it's just not for, it's not just for men. So can you elaborate testosterone that it's not just for men, it's important for women as well? Testosterone is so misunderstood in women. What we know is that it is the most abundant hormone that women make. A lot of folks don't realize that. They think it's estrogen, the hormone that gives us hips and breasts and has about 400 jobs in the body. But if you look at a hormone panel on a woman and on a man, the testosterone is the most abundant, so highest concentration. So women have 10 to 20 times less than men, but we are exquisitely sensitive to those levels. So it's important to realize that the function of testosterone is about the same in men and women. So it's involved in muscle mass, it's involved in sex drive, it's involved in vitality, it helps to reduce anxiety, it helps with mood, with preventing depression, but it also plays a really key role in metabolic health. And the part that is different, you know, I'm always paying attention to sex differences. We know for women that testosterone is especially important for confidence, agency, and even risk-taking. So there was a super interesting study looking at women MBA students. And they found that the women who were the most entrepreneurial, the most willing to take risks financially, were the ones that had higher testosterone levels. So we want to be thinking about this because testosterone tends to decline starting in your late 20s. And if you're someone who has a sweet tooth, who eats a little too much in the way of sugar, or you're someone who binges on stress, has high perceived stress, you can have a more accelerated decline of testosterone. That's true for both men and women, but I see more stress in women than I do in my male patients. On one hand, men and women are completely different, makes total sense, yet we still lump them together when it comes to medicine. You know, we talked about keto talked about testosterone a little bit. Where else are we just lumping men and women together when we go see our doctor where we shouldn't? What are we still getting wrong there? How much time do we have? I've got a long <laughs> list. Um, so maybe what I'll do is I'll start with glucose. So a lot of the research done on what should the cutoffs be for normal glucose, which mainstream medicine defines as 70 to 99, the cutoffs for prediabetes, this intermediate state of problems with glucose between 100 and 125, and then the cutoff for diabetes, fasting glucose greater than 125, those were really defined in men. And we know that women start to have evidence of pretty serious vascular problems and cardiovascular disease at lower fasting glucose than men. So 
That's something I always talk to my patients about. I specialize in prediabetes, so I'm always looking for it. We know that it's not like your fasting glucose is 100 and all of a sudden you've got all these problems associated with prediabetes. It's more of a spectrum. So having a fasting glucose greater than 85, for instance, is associated with more insulin block, with your cells becoming numb to insulin. And so we've got to be thinking not just what's normal, but also what's optimal. And then separating what's optimal for men versus what's optimal for women. So that's just one example. How's that one, Jason? It's a good one. It's a good one. On the subject of hormones too, melatonin, sleep, melatonin, people use sleep aids, women use sleep, sleep aids, men use sleep aids. Melatonin's a hormone. Can you talk about melatonin use and sleep and women and why we need to be careful about that? Yeah, so with melatonin, the way I think of it is that I really, in my work, I love to work with the innate intelligence of the body. And I really believe when it comes to melatonin, that part of what we want to do is to give the body a gentle nudge. So when it comes to melatonin, as an example, the data is really best with jet lag, with trying to catch up in terms of time change, time zone changes. The data is less good in the use of melatonin for sleep on an ongoing basis. So what I like to do with melatonin is I like to give a small dose of it. So we're talking here about 0.3 to even 0.5 milligrams four hours before you go to sleep. And what that does is it signals to the body that melatonin is starting to rise. And then when it starts to decline, ideally, you know, 10, 10 p.m., that's where your body kicks in and starts to produce more melatonin. So when it comes to melatonin, I have a much lighter touch than I think others do. And in terms of the risks of taking too much melatonin, I think a lot of people just get into the habit of taking really massive doses. I had a patient last week, I run a Dutch test to look, for instance, at what's happening with hormones and metabolites. And she had a melatonin level that was about 500 times what it should be. And she's just been taking melatonin for years and years. So I was seeing her for the first time. And part of what we need to do in that case is to back off on the melatonin and to find a way to work with the innate intelligence of the body better. Did you have an experience with the melatonin? No, we have, we have a strong opinion on it. Colleen, my wife, has had chronic insomnia. And what we use is our product, which is magnesium bisglycinate, jujube, and pharmagaba. And our experience with melatonin and everything we've learned about melatonin, your language was appropriate. Like what you're looking for for sleep is a nudge, not a sledgehammer. And the issue we have with melatonin, I think it's a reset, like the perfect example, jet lag, or like you just have a really bad night and you just need something. You, you really need that extra push where you have, you go a little higher on, on melatonin, but it's not a daily. And what's worrisome is because you're building a tolerance to it. You see what, what you just described. I've talked to doctors on the show where They've seen people with like all of a sudden they're taking 10 grand, like insane amounts. And then it has this cast effect where it's an insane amount because they built a tolerance and they wake up in the morning and they drink like tons of coffee. And it just is this <laughs> terrible cascading effect. And it's look, people, can, I have a lot of sympathy for people who can't sleep and you have to do what you have to do. But 
I think it's just important to note specifically with women too and how it affects their hormones. And there's a lot going on there that we don't talk enough about. Yeah, such an important point. We, I, I think what happens for a lot of folks is they feel a benefit from a small dose of melatonin. And so they keep chasing that benefit and raising the dose. But what you have to remember with hormones is that it's not a linear response when it comes to sleep or pretty much any other symptom that we're addressing. It's much more of a U-shaped response. That's the way that physiology works. And so what we want to do is be thinking not just about the level, but also um, production, like what's going on with the production of melatonin. It's converted from serotonin. Do you have enough serotonin? Do you have enough 5-HTP? We want to be thinking about transport. We want to be thinking about uh, sensitivity of the receptor. So when you have such massive doses of melatonin, the receptor is just like, I'm out, you know, just like <laughs> done. And then you also want to think about detoxification. So this is part of the functional medicine approach that we're thinking not just about levels and kind of cranking them up or topping them off. We're thinking more about how, what's the systems biology approach? How do we think about the system of the body and give those nudges so that we can get back to a place of homeostasis, such as with great sleep? Right. Also a supplement, also a hormone, vitamin D. Can you talk about the importance of vitamin D? Vitamin D is so crucial. It's, uh, as you said, it's both a vitamin and a hormone. It's uh, the place where I see, we know that somewhere around 80% of the population is low, even during the pandemic, when we know that that is probably one of the easiest ways that we can boost immunity. I take care of an NBA team, and it's just amazing to me how most of the players are Which team? I didn't know. Wait, 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 we have to stop there. Which NBA, I didn't know this. Which NBA team do you take care of? Well, I'm on the faculty at Thomas Jefferson University, and I'm the director of precision medicine at the Marcus Institute. And so I, I help with the 76ers, the Philadelphia 76ers. Oh, wow. Okay. We'll have to offline about that. Sorry. Sorry yeah. for interrupting. I'm, I'm a big NBA fan. So, okay. Well, yeah, and you played, didn't you play college ball? Like, I'm I, trying to remember. I, I did play at Columbia, but I'm very different from the NBA. Well, <laughs> I was a very uh, average college basketball player. Well, it's just amazing to me because if we just take an NBA player as an example, and I won't name any names here, but what we know is that when you're someone who exercises regularly and at a high level, we know that that leads to increased intestinal permeability. So those tight junctions that we have in the gut start to separate. You have this increased permeability. One of the most important jobs of the many hundred that vitamin D does is to help you with the integrity of your gut lining. So especially for folks who like to exercise and these NBA players who train for three hours a day, it's so essential for vitamin D to be in this Goldilocks position, not too low, not too high. And what I like with my patients is I like a level somewhere between about 50 and 90. I really like it, especially for metabolism to be about 70 to 90. With my NBA players, I'll live with 50 because that's often as high as I can get them. But yeah, it's so crucial. I mean, it's involved in mood, it's involved in metabolism. The list is long, bone health, of course. And I just find that, you know, it's one of those low hanging fruits yeah. that all of us should be paying attention to. 
And, and you nailed it, very top of mind coming out of COVID. Very top of mind. And I look, for instance, at the COVID protocols that the NBA has and the bubble that they had. And then these guys are running around with levels of 20. And I'm just like, what are you doing? Like, they don't need to be tested every day. Give them some vitamin D, please. Yeah, we're getting there. Slowly but surely, we're getting there. So growth hormone, IGF-1. I don't think a lot of people know what it is. So can you give us a primer on IGF-1 and why it's so critical and what we can do there? Growth hormone is so important. It's, uh, as the name suggests, it's involved in growth and repair. So as a kid, growth hormone is involved in your height, kind of the maximum height that you achieve. So you, Jason, I think had very good uh, growth hormone levels. And we know that it mostly rises at night. So sleep is such an important part of our health for many reasons, not just the lymphatic system, not just how it helps us with metabolism and insulin, but also because that's when we make these hormones that are involved in growth and repair. So if I take a step back, the way that you could classify hormones is into two camps. So one camp is the wear and tear hormones. That's cortisol, things that kind of break down muscle, break down tissues. And then there's the growth and repair hormones, the anabolic hormones that got a bad name with doping, but the anabolic hormones are so important for repairing the muscle after you have a hard workout, for repairing cells at night. Now, growth hormone is hard to measure. We do that mostly on a research basis. There's a proxy for measuring growth hormone, which is IGF-1. So what I focus on in the book is some detail about growth hormone and then I recommend measuring IGF-1. And what I find in a lot of my patients, especially the ones that maybe are busy with their career and not exercising as much as they know they perhaps should be, is that growth hormone can really decline. So I see that in people in their 30s and 40s. There's a sex difference too. So women make growth hormone in a different way than men. We actually have more growth hormone than men until menopause. So once we hit menopause, women have this really precipitous decline that I mentioned earlier, and you can really feel it. Like you may feel it as fatigue. It may show up as belly fat. It's one of many hormones that are involved in glucose metabolism. And what I think is the most exciting thing about growth hormone, it's not that I want everyone to start taking growth hormone shots or even peptides. It's that lifestyle can have such a huge effect on your hormones and growth hormone is no exception. So I did this little experiment. I'm always doing these end of one experiments. You know how nerdy I am, Jason. And so I did this experiment a few years ago where I raised my growth hormone, my IGF-1, by about 53% just with changing the way that I was exercising. So this is where a high intensity interval training can be very helpful. So there's other things that can affect your growth hormone as well, such as for women, and this is probably gonna be somewhat controversial, we know that animal-based protein raises growth hormone in women. For men, vegetable-based protein and animal-based protein can raise growth hormone, but in women, it's mostly animal-based. So in my patients who are vegan or plant-based, I often find that their growth hormone is lower. There's other ways that you can raise it, such as with uh, whey protein shakes, with exercises I mentioned, and then there's a few other factors that I have in the book. 
So something you, else you talk about is traditional Chinese medicine. It's, it's brief, but I thought it was interesting. Can you talk about the TCM approach and what we can learn when it comes to hormones? Well, I'm fascinated by traditional Chinese medicine. I feel like when I first started to learn about integrative medicine at Harvard Medical School, I was really blessed to work with a guy named David Eisenberg, who was one of the early physicians to go to China and to get trained in traditional Chinese medicine. I also worked with Ted Kapchuk. I took a seminar from them. And I really felt like understanding some of the concepts of traditional Chinese medicine, especially the way that this healing modality developed in the absence of all the functional testing that we now have, it's really fascinating to now see the clinical correlates of some of the concepts in traditional Chinese medicine. So it doesn't always, hormonal imbalances don't necessarily translate perfectly when it comes to traditional Chinese medicine, but I've got one woman in particular named Emily Hooker who shadowed me about 15 years ago. And we've just kept in touch and we just talk all the time about hormones and TCM. And she was really interested in estrogen dominance and how that shows up in you know, the pulses that she's testing and formulas that she's coming up with for patients. And I remember there was one case in the book, Melissa, who had this these really heavy sighs. Like she would be in my office or we would be on Zoom and she would have like these sighs that I don't even think she noticed she was doing. And I, I kind of picked up on it. And I asked Emily about it. She's like, oh, well, that's a really clear factor that we look for when it comes to cheese stagnation, like liver cheese stagnation. So that was an example of kind of a correlate with estrogen dominance, one of the hormone imbalances that I saw in this particular patient. She also had some glucose issues, but it was just fascinating to talk to Emily a little more about this. So I don't want to, I don't want to suggest that I'm an expert at TCM, but I'm just always looking for how do we make connections so that we can kind of understand more deeply what's going on with us. Because even though I practice traditional, even though I practice precision medicine, I think it's important to, to realize that so much of what we do rests on the shoulders of what's been done for the past 2,500 years. So I have great respect and reverence for TCM. Same thing with Ayurveda. And I think there's so much that we can learn and kind of pull into our more modern practice. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And on a personal level, I have received acupuncture numerous times. I love shiatsu. And there have been so many times when I've been dealing with something and I'll turn to my practitioner and say, which meridian is that? And they'll say like, oh, kidney or liver. I'm like, spot on. Which one is that? I always ask. And it's just, it's fascinating. And to your point, a lot of these ancient modalities, they're not always perfect, but there's a lot to be said for that institutional wisdom of the last 2,500 years. And it's fascinating. I encourage everyone to, to give it a shot. I've never tried acupuncture, shiatsu, or whatever modality is interesting to you that's, that falls under the TCM umbrella. Well, and it, it really works for so many hormone imbalances. You know, I've seen that Time and again, I often refer patients to Emily and to other acupuncturists that are nearby. I also had this experience where I was in China a few years ago and I wasn't sleeping. And that was really unusual for me because I'm a great sleeper. 
but I just was kind of stuck in this pattern related to the jet lag, perhaps, where I, I didn't sleep for about a week. And as when you don't sleep, you become mildly psychotic. Like it's just, it's no fun. And I went to see a traditional Chinese medicine physician who went through his whole process, gave me a bunch of herbs that I, I couldn't read the names of. And of course, it just immediately got me to sleep like a baby that night. <laughs> so I became a believer. I already had that from my experience in medical school starting in 1989. But, you know, often there are these things that we're still learning from these ancient healing systems. I always feel like lack of proof is not proof against because we now take TCM and we try to apply this Western way of analyzing it, looking at randomized controlled trials with some of the herbal formulations. And it doesn't always translate well into our more mainstream way of looking at evidence. So this is another place where I think personalization is so important. And my hope is that we're heading in medicine toward greater personalization, whether that's diet or sleep or exercise, really understanding, okay, there's no one size fits all. What's going to work the best for you? So you have a sense of what works for you in terms of methylation. That's the kind of personalization that we want. So on that subject, what do you, you've seen, you know, you, you have tremendous perspective being at this for a while. There, there's, we, we've seen a lot come and go. We've seen fads, we've fad diets, we've seen fad books. <laughs> I, I do agree we're at such an interesting time in, in the health and well-being world with personalization as I wear my aura ring and my clip yep. and my Fitbit and you've got it. I've done levels with our friend Casey. I've tried everything. What is interesting to you? Like, where do you think this conversation is going in the next year or so? Like what's early and interesting and what do you think is, eh, maybe a little bit of a fad. I don't think that has legs. What's early and interesting is that you can personalize something like diet in so many different ways. So if we just take continuous glucose monitoring, what I love about CGMs is that it allows us to see, okay, Jason, the dinner that you had last night, did anything spike you? What happens when you have a banana? What happens when you have an apple? What happens when you have sweet potatoes? What if you add some extra virgin olive oil to the sweet potatoes? Does that mitigate like a spike rise in your glucose? So I think this personalization is really important. I've seen some pushback toward personalization, you know, especially using CGMs in non-diabetics because mainstream medicine is very threatened by it. They're used to a system that only pays for the use of continuous glucose monitors in patients who are diabetics, mostly type 1, increasingly type 2 diabetics. But there's a problem with that line of reasoning. And that is, if I put my engineering hat on, we know that we exist in this state of health, and then we go through these transition states. So we go through a transition, for instance, to prediabetes. And that was my story when I was in my 30s. So I had prediabetes, fasting glucose 110, 115, pretty consistently. And then we go through another transition state from pre-disease to disease. And to me, with what I know about the body after doing this for about 30 years, 
the earlier that we intervene in those transition states, the more likely we're able to reverse disease. So when I look at something like continuous glucose monitoring, what gets me excited is that we can look at this spectrum, you know, from the transition from health to pre-disease to disease, the sooner that we intervene, the better. So that's what I get really excited about. And the transition to pre-diabetes is very different than the transition to diabetes. What we know, for instance, is that your insulin an hour after a meal changes about 13 years before that diagnosis of type 2 diabetes. So that gives us tremendous opportunity to be looking at patients much earlier, to be more predictive, to personalize an approach. So that's what I get excited about. I think there's, because I practice precision medicine, I always ask myself, are we measuring too much? Are we going overboard? Are we similar to the development of orthorexia, where people have this unhealthy obsession with healthy food? Are we creating unhealthy obsessions with trackers? So I always have to ask that question. I always have to sort of frame, okay, with each patient, what are your values? What is it that we're working on? What do you want your health for? What really matters to you in terms of your health? Oh, you want to dance with your great-grandchildren at their wedding. Okay, let's work towards that. We're going to work on health span and longevity and glucose because those are such important drivers. So I guess my caution is that with all the tracking that I do, I think about what's the purpose of this? I mean, similar to any test that I order, I'm always thinking, what am I going to do with this information? Mm-hmm. I don't want to just measure it for the sake of measuring it. I want to I want to understand what how it's going to change behavior for the patient, how it's going to change my recommendations. I think that piece is really important. What do you think? I, I agree. I track everything. And, and I would say to me, it's, you know, I like actionable insights and I'm lucky to, to work with a, a great team and know a lot of really smart people who I can ask questions about. But to, to your point, it's what's the why? You know, for me, it's longevity. Going to the what you mentioned about trackers, we had a guest, Dr. Judd Brewer, on the show. God, it was earlier this year. And he's a psychiatrist. And he, he talks about it like addiction and habit changing. And he's like, if you're wearing your Fitbit and you find yourself like walking around your living room to try to get more steps at the end of the day, like, what are you doing? That's a problem. And, I, and, and then I, it came up with Mark Sisson, who... You know, is God, I think he's like 68 and he looks amazing and he's just incredible. And and he's just like the nicest guy in in the world. And and he was like, if I have a great dinner with friends and I I need more steps to walk home, like, I'm not going to do it. I'm going to hop in the Uber. Like, it doesn't matter. What do we do? And it's a balance. Tracking is helpful when there are actionable insights versus tracking for the sake of tracking and it's something i've become conscious of and been been better at it but i I think sometimes it's just tmi you know what's the why yeah i think it's really important to understand the why another area that i think is related to this is genetic testing so i i feel like i was in medical school with a human genome project was uh underway And we were just so excited for the first genome to be published. We felt like this was going to be a revolution in medicine, that it would guide us further. And the party never happened, Jason. Like it's, 
we ended up with all these direct-to-consumer tests that are a little nefarious that collect all this marketing data. We also have a lot of testing that then says, oh, you should take this supplement by this particular brand. And I feel like we're now, just now, finally understanding that we need to be thinking along the lines of pathways. So not, you know, one SNP, what that does to methylation, but instead a list of SNPs, like 14 different single nucleotide polymorphisms and what that does to methylation. So I'm excited about that particular change. I would say that's another fad that didn't quite deliver on its promise, although I, I'm still hopeful. And one thing I can say, getting back to basketball players, my favorite sport, is that genomics, with what we know about sports genomics right now, you can predict about 40% of performance capacity, like VO2 max, lactate threshold, injury, and recovery with genetics. So I really see the benefit, especially in terms of performance. And because I work mostly with professional athletes and executives, I'm curious about how is this going to help us with performance going forward, with longevity, with really understanding, such as in your case, how do we get that inflammatory tone to a place that it's compatible with your why? Fascinating. Sarah, thank you so much. Love the book, Women, Food, and Hormones, a four-week plan to achieve hormonal balance, lose weight, and feel like yourself again. Thank you, Jason. So fun to be with you.